Well, good morning once again. And thank you again so much for having me uh, minister the word of the Lord here at Fountain Gate. Like I said in the first service, Fountain Gate is a, a church close to my heart because your leaders are close to my heart. And I love you dearly uh, in the Lord. And I mean that sincerely. Uh, I really love you guys with all of my heart and um, regard you as family. In the first service, I'm going to get straight into the message because there's so much. In the first service, I demonstrated to you in a prophetic fashion from the scriptures that in order to strengthen yourself, you must strengthen your leader. If you want strong hands, you must strengthen the hands of your leader. The, the grace of God attends the purposes of the Lord. When God has something to do in the earth, His will or His purpose requires His grace. The purposes of the Lord are stewarded by a person or a leader. That person is mandated to give administration or stewardship over the purposes of the Lord. So to get the grace of God to the purpose of the Lord, that grace is vested within the person stewarding the purpose of the Lord. So God would select a leader and put grace in him to steward and to give expression to the will of the Lord. Now around that leader, God will bring in support systems or support personnel, which I call mighty men, as they were described in reference to King David, God will bring support structures or mighty men around that leader. What is God's preeminent um, ideal? What is God's objective? Everyone say purpose. So God has something to be done on the earth. God is a God of purpose and will. But to get things done, He works through human beings. Puts a leader to administrate a purpose, and He will put individuals around that leader to support the leader. But those supporting the leader mustn't in their support only be short-sighted as having the leader in mind. The preeminent view when you support a leader, your main view must be the purposes of the Lord, must be the will of the Lord being done in the earth. And so to get the purposes done, you support the leader who is mandated to steward that purpose in the earth. Okay? Now this demands death unto yourself. This demands death to your vision, your ambition, what you want to do. You die to your own ambition to support God's purposes stewarded by a leader. This particular congregation is greatly mandated with huge responsibility to give administration to the purposes of the Lord in East Africa and beyond. Your leaders have a huge task in Christ and to make their job easier my encouragement to you is that you must position yourself as a support structure in reference to them to get the job done. Everyone say we have to get the job done. Yeah. Right? We have to get the job done. 
And Nehemiah completed the wall in 52 days, the Bible says. Let's just go there quickly. Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah completed the wall in 52 days. If you read Nehemiah chapter 4 from verses 1 onwards. Now before we read this in the first service, I illustrated to you from the scriptures that David was called of God to steward the purposes of God in Israel. God has a will for Israel and he puts a king or leader over them to get the job done. David had an army of men. He had men from every tribe supporting him, but he had 30 men that were like elite forces and headed by three significant people, one war head of the three, supporting David to get the job done. And the scripture says this in First Chronicles, it says, they strengthened themselves by strengthening David. So when you, when you strengthen your leader, you are strengthening yourself. It's a great key. Everyone say, it's a great key. Say, it's a great secret. It escapes most people. It escapes most sons of God. It's a valuable key. Listen carefully. Grace will come to you to enhance what God has called you to do in life as you support your leader. Right? Now, in Nehemiah's day, the Bible says in Nehemiah 4, it came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and he mocked the Jews. Did God have a purpose for Nehemiah? Yes or no? What was the purpose? Rebuild the, the wall. So there was a task, there was something to do. Something to do. Every will of God will recruit unto itself serious opposition from the realm of the demonic. Don't think that your task is going to be a walk in the park. Oh, God has called us. Let's do it. I'm alerting to us to this. There will be opposition. There will be attempts by the Sanballats of life and the Tobias of life to hinder the work to come against you. But I'm, in, I'm here to encourage you, you can overcome. And you will overcome every opposition that God will present to you. By that the enemy is, is, is exposed by the Lord in reference to the opposition that he will bring against you. The Bible says, so Sanballat, the enemy of God, is furious at the rebuilding program. Okay. Let me just say this, James, already you've made some people furious. Not everybody's happy. Well done, go on. There are some now, even now, by the Spirit of the Lord, I inform you, that are strategizing for your failure. Don't just think that where the significant purpose of the Lord is afoot, that even the enemy is applauding you. No, I, I, I'm picking up this, I didn't plan to go here. I'm picking this up by the Spirit. There are some that there are some sandballas not happy with what is going on. And they are right now in boardrooms conspiring to how can we oppose what they do? Or how can we neutralize their potential effect? What can we do to, to attack them? And so it says he became furious and angry and he mocks them. Now the mocking spirit, you must understand. 
The mocking spirit is a deriding spirit. It, a mocking spirit is satanic because it comes up against God's men and God's supportive men to the man that he has called to, to try and make you feel less than what you really are. Its intent is to attack your potential. It knows what you are capable of doing, so it will mock you to make you feel as though you cannot. And I want to encourage you, don't give in to that spirit of discouragement. It's a spirit of discouragement. It's a spirit that derides, that, that, that attacks worth, that attacks potential in God. Don't succumb to that. Okay? So the, the verse 2 says the following. He spoke, Sanballat spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, Sanballat's strategy is not to deal with ordinary people. He goes into strategic influential people, the wealthy people of Samaria. Samaria. Samaria is a place of mixture. It's that group that entertains mixture. It's that group that entertains two positions. And he goes to influence them, okay, in order to uh, attack Israel and Nehemiah. And said, what are these what? He calls them feeble Jews. Huh? Who are these feeble people at Fountain Gate, Nairobi, Kenya? That's Sanballat's attack. These are not strong. These are feeble. Let me just say, you are not feeble. You are mighty men in God. Huh? I declare to you, don't give in to that spirit that says we are weak. We are nothing. The mandate's too big. We cannot cope. I declare unto you, uh, by the spirit of the Lord, I remove by my utterance that spirit from your house from your mind that says to you, we cannot, we're weak, the task is too great. That spirit that says, you are weak, you are feeble, you are inept, you can't speak on certain platforms, that spirit will not prevail against the purposes of the Lord in this house. Yes? Right? You see, it's God's purposes that we are after. The attack is not against us. The attack is against God's purposes. So all we say to God is, God, strengthen our hands. God, strengthen our hands and do not let this mocking spirit, the spirit that seeks to reduce our worth, thrive against us. Amen. Tell someone next to you, you are not feeble. Come on, say something strongly. You are not feeble. Tell someone, you are a mighty man. Tell them you're going to do far more than you've ever dreamed. And it says, he continues the mocking, he says, are they going to restore it for themselves? Right? He tries to bring in a, um, a, a, a distortion of focus. He tries to instill within the people that what they're doing is for themselves and not for God and His purposes. Okay? Never succumb to that. Always focus on the Lord and His purposes. And, and he, he further says, can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a day? Okay. Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Remember the walls were burnt with fire. Not so. The gates were destroyed. Not so. So there's all like charred and burnt bricks in the rubble lying. And what is he saying? San Balat is saying, look what they have to build with. Even their resources to build is burned and charred. Even what they have at their disposal is, is not 
footing quality enough to build what they think they're going to build. Amen? Let me just say this. God can use burnt stones. God can use charred stones. God can take social misfits and make them powerful in the kingdom of God. No matter what your struggles have been, no matter what your context has been, no matter how you failed God in the past, no matter how burnt you have been, no matter how broken you have been, I want to submit to you today, God wants you in the building program. Nobody is excluded. Everybody needs to get back on board. Amen. A bump your neighbor and say, you might be burned, but you are not disqualified. God's going to use everybody. Right? You know, I've been a charred stone in Christ. I've been burned. I've been so by human standards, they would say, is God going to build with that quality? Let me just say, everything that's submitted to the hand of God becomes transformed into something powerful that God can use in His hand. So this mocking spirit says, look what they have to build with. Yeah? Don't look in the natural at what you see. God's going to bring a new quality, a new ilk, a new pedigree out from charred stones. What you see here are people of worth, people of stature, people of regality, people of nobility in Christ. Tell the person next to you, you are a king. Tell them you are a prince. Okay? And you know what he says? The other guy, Tobiah, jumps on board and he tries to mock. Let me just say this. There's going to be the collusion of mocking spirits. One mocking spirit invites another mocking spirit to join it. Right? So the, the, the attack, in fact, the book of Nehemiah is one of the most fascinating studies ever. If you track from Nehemiah 1 right through to Nehemiah 6, the attack progressively grows and builds. Right? Right? It builds, and you can see the progression here. I want to have time to go through that because I'll be sidetracked. So this guy says, even if what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. So he, he is attacking the longevity of what we build. He's, a, he's saying, if let them build, no problem, let them build, let them carry on. What they're building will not outlast time. What they are building will not have long-lasting value. What they are building will only be for the year and now. But I tell you by the Spirit of the Lord, James and Lucy, Gideon and company, continue. Carry on. Carry on. Carry on for what you are building now. You know, when I saw the young children here, what you are building now, they are going to enjoy the benefits of. This thing is not for a day. This thing is for generations upon generations upon. And I think only time and eternity will tell the impact of what you are doing now. Amen. Uh, uh, so tell your neighbor, get ready for 2019. Right? Get, get ready. Right? So it, it, it's like uh, God is saying, uh, I'm calling you, I'm causing you to build generationally and what you build will have eternal value attached to it. It's not for the immediate. Yes, it will have an immediate impact, but its impact will transcend the immediate and will go into future generations. So, look at verse 4. Next verse. 
Nehemiah's responses to the Lord. Nehemiah hearing all of these things. And he says this, Hear God how we are despised. Return their reproach upon their heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Verse 5, Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you for they have demoralized the builders. Nehemiah prays a very dangerous prayer. You know why he is passionate after? Everyone say the purposes of the Lord. The purposes of the Lord. I believe we must be a forgiving people. When he prays a prayer like this, don't even forgive them, God. <laughs> That's a violent prayer, right? You see, there's, we must be forgiving in our disposition. But there are times in God where we need to be very discerning, led by the Spirit of the Lord, where you cannot treat this, this kind of mocking spirit lightheartedly. Because it's seriously opposed to God and His purposes. So God is saying, God, Nehemiah is saying to God, rise up and deal with this. God, you deal with this. And you know, the next verse is interesting. I like what it says. So we built the wall. Tell your neighbor, let's just do it. Just like, I like the guy's attitude. He's saying, no problem. Seize attack. No big deal. So we built the wall. Everyone just do this. So we built the wall. Put your hands. So we built the wall. You think, what? It's like, no big deal. Let's just carry on. Huh? Tell your neighbor, let's just carry on. Huh? Just build the wall. In other words, don't give the attack against you airtime. Don't give it unwarranted focus. Don't let it consume your, your prayer times. This guy said one prayer that took a few seconds. That's all the time he gave this attack. He said, God, deal with them. Don't forgive them. So we build a wall, right? Don't give. You know what? You must not be involved in battles that God did not ordain for you. This was a distraction. This was a distraction. Sanballat and Tobias' intent was to do to distract. You know, later in the book, if you read, Tobiah actually wanted to be, after he realized their seriousness, he wanted to become part of the, the builders with an intent to undermine the building program. So you even got to be very wary as to whom you permit to become in alliance with you. They come under the smoke screen, we are with you, but their intent is to break what you are building. Nehemiah was very discerning. Nehemiah said to him, you have no part in this, no inheritance in Israel. So bye-bye on your way. <laughs> the spirit of Nehemiah is upon me. <laughs> hey, I just love this, 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 word, this verse. This summer, so we built a wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height. Why? Come on, why? The people had a mind to, to work. You see, the only phrase in this text that was the buffer against serious demonic attempts to discourage was one phrase. The people had a, a mind to work. Okay? So before you work with your hands, you resolve to work with your mind. 
such that it must be so strong, it must be so consolidated, that even when the enemy comes to discourage you, you are not detoured by discouragements, and you don't retract your support from your leader because of private issues you are, are, are busy with in your own life. Let me say, the quickest way the enemy will oppose the support that supportive men should give their leader is to attack those men in their private world, in their domestic life, in their marriage life, on their work front. Because if they get discouraged there, the potential to retract their support to their leader becomes all the more possible. But I want to encourage you, don't let discouragement from the enemy be good enough reason for you to rescind or retract your support. Okay, you tell the enemy, throw what you want to against me. I am a mighty man after all. I'm not an ordinary man, I'm a mighty man. I'm part of David's elite forces. My mind is made up, I will work. Tell someone, have a made up mind. Tell someone, we will arise and we will build. You'll read it early in the book. He said, we will arise and we will build. And the people had a mind to, the people had a mind to work. And look at how the war was completed, just just for the sake of time. Nehemiah chapter 6, yeah, the wall is half its height. And usually, in the process of completing anything, the opposition is strong. So let's read how the wall was completed. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 15 says the following. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul in in 52 days. 52 days is just under two months. 60 days is about two months. So Nehemiah built a whole wall around a whole city in just under two months. Trowel in the one hand and a sword in the other. Because they constantly came against the builders. Right? So when the, when the attack came, you don't stop building. They had sword in one hand and building implements in the other. So don't allow any attack to stop the building process. Okay? In fact, in the, from a New Testament perspective, building is your greatest strength against the enemy. What did Jesus say in Matthew 16? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So the gates of hell, it's not like the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the church. That's not true. The text says that I will build my church, then the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell do not prevail against the built church or the building activity in the church so building is the most violent expression of warfare so it's 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 modeled for us in nehemiah where they build and they fight when you build you are actively resisting the enemy so tell someone consistently build tell someone continue to continue to build and so if you go back to nehemiah 6 15 They complete the wall in 52 days and check the result in the next verse. When all our enemies heard about it. Who has enemies? Anybody? Someone says, I wish my enemies long life. They must live a long time 
so that they can live to see all of my successes. <laughs> Nehemiah said this, all the nations surrounding us saw it. They lost what? They lost confidence. They lost their, their impetus. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished. How? Uh, everyone say, the help of God. We want to come to the throne to find grace to help in times of need. Grace, God's help, is given to Nehemiah because Nehemiah had a workforce that refused to be discouraged in the activity for which they were called. So the workers are strengthened because of their support to the purposes of God in Nehemiah. Okay, and the text says this work was completed in 52 days. The commentary is God helped us. Everyone say God helped us. The help of God, listen carefully, is accessed to a people that will support a leader in the purposes of the Lord. That group will always know the help of the Lord, the help of the Lord. Now I want to demonstrate this variously from different portions of Scripture. And there are too many to, um, to list, so I'm going to go off a bit, a bit quick. In fact, let me just quickly relay one principle, which I think is very important for you to, to understand. Let's just read John chapter 4 and verse 34. John 4.34 Jesus said, My forty is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus doesn't do his own will. Jesus does the will of his Father. The principle here is that the Son always works to fulfill the Father's vision and the Son never works to fulfill his own ambition. It's the Father's vision, not my personal ambition. Okay? And in the next verse, he says this. Do not say there are four months, then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white unto harvest. So he's not saying, um, or he's saying, he's saying ready to them, you, don't say four months more, right? And there's harvest. So they were in the third month when they said this. Harvest here alludes to the Feast of Tabernacles. As you know, I've taught you this before, the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated in the seventh month. Not so? So Passover was celebrated in the first month, Pentecost in the third month, and Tabernacles, which is fullness or completeness, in the seventh month. So if this statement, if Jesus is saying, do not say there are four months more, what month is he standing in? He's standing in the third month, Pentecost. Uh, four months later would be seventh month, tabernacles, fullness, harvest. So he's right now standing in the third month and he's saying to his disciples, don't say in your hearts, there's still four months more for tabernacles or for harvest or for fullness or for completeness. He's saying, if you can get your belief right, your representation right, you can be in the third month but have tabernacles now. So bring the seventh month into your third month. Don't postpone it. 
Because he says, look, don't wait for a harvest field in the seventh month. Look, the fields are already white unto harvest. And let me just say this to you prophetically, Fountain Gate, James, Lucy, that God's going to give you a harvest. And I'm sending the urgency. That's why I like what you said to the chairman here, Gideon. You're doing a fantastic job. For what I've seen of you over the years, you've been very faithful, very diligent. Great blessing in you and many other sons here. But I believe that you're modeling something uh, that others will follow in. Have the meeting urgently for 2019. Don't say next year. Don't say four months. I'm saying to you, there's a harvest of people already waiting for the invitation for next year. That's the urgency with which we must work. Jesus is saying, hey guys, don't live in postponement. Don't live in deferment. You function now. Don't live by Babylon's time clocks. Don't live by, by chronology of calendars that Babylon has set for you. You wire yourself according to the urgency of my will in the earth for you now. And then he says this, verse 36. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering of fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Next verse. But this is the case that is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, but you are entering into their labor. If anybody has entered into Pastor Thamo's labor, it is James and Lucy. He has labored. You've entered into his labor and you're going to reap where you have not sown. Listen to the principle. It's a very powerful principle if you catch it. Okay? Very powerful principle if you catch it. Jesus is saying, you don't have to sow for every harvest. If you learn how to enter the labors of those who have sown, you can reap the harvest that should have been accrued to them. But because you understand something, the leader whom I support has sown in a particular respect. If I support him, I come to be a beneficiary and a harvester of a result as because of the seeds that he has sown in a different time zone. Okay? Now, please bear that in mind. Do you know, myself, I'm the beneficiary of so much today because of my support to Pastor Thamo. With all my might, I try to provide him strong support wherever I can. Yeah? I do it diligently. I'm coming to certain blessings now I know is not because of me. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't sow one seed in there. But what I'm coming into is the blessing of my father. Right? Tell your neighbor, learn the secrets. He has a purpose. He has the will of God. Attendant with him. I'm a mighty man. All I do is I give him Jazak. Strong support. Everyone say Jazak. Say Azar. Hallelujah. Amen. And for those of you that weren't in the first service, Jazak is strong support. Azar is help. Right? The help you give to your leader. All I do is give him. And I enter where I've not sown. I've entered into labor. And I pull seasons into my present. And I began to function in a field of harvest that for, for me in my time that I literally am not responsible for. Right? You don't have to sow for everything. You can reap for what others have sown. 
Yeah? Yeah? Let me demonstrate this with the life of Moses and a few others. Time is on our side, okay? Exodus 3 verse 6 says the following. Who loves Moses, by the way? I like Moses because I think he was a great leader. Who would like to lead 600,000 people? Anybody? And you're not even leading them in a building with lights, fans. You're in a wilderness, a desert. Right? And this group is not cooperative. They're all rebels. Don't listen to you. Who'd like that leader? I think Moses must really be saying, Oh, brother, you did well in that phase of God's will. I certainly wouldn't like to have been you. Right? But you know what the Bible says? Look at this. This is how God mandates Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Notice, and the Lord said to him, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up to that land, a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, for the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hevite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, I will send you. Everyone say, I will send you. Say it again, I will send you. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring. Everyone say, you're going to do it. You're going to bring Moses, my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But listen, how does God start this? Look at verse 6 again. How does he start this? Yes, you're going to be the man. You're going to be God's man of power for the hour. You're going to be the man with the rod. You're going to perform miracles. My anointing grace is on you. But for you to understand that anointing, what must I first educate you on Moses? Right? Look at verse 6 again. What does verse 6 say? What did God, does God start the conversation? I am the God of who? Father Abraham, Father Isaac, Father Jacob. What is God saying to Moses? You can't do your own thing. Whatever I'm going to do through you is going to directly be a fulfillment of prophecies I've given to forefathers. So a son never ever does his thing disconnected from the prophetic registry and mandate that his spiritual father carries. Okay? That his spiritual father carries. It's very, very important. Right? Remember in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, the son and the nation that will be born of you will be enslaved for 400 years. This is God's, God told Abraham this before Abraham even had one son. Isaac wasn't born yet, yet God is telling Abraham that the nation that will be born of you will be incarcerated, enslaved by foreigners for 400 years. But after 400 years, I will deliver them also with a mighty hand. God said that to Abraham. The vision, the purpose, the mandate is given to Abraham. The man on the ground that God's going to use to fulfill that prophecy is a man called 
Moses. So Moses is entering into the labor of Abram. Moses is going to enjoy grace anointing because of one word that God didn't give to him. God gave it to Abraham. We get big heads when God gives us vision. We think it's us. No, we are just the end part of the outplaying of prophecies given to forefathers. And if you can lock your vision, be let your what you do in your locality be an expression of God's purposes in a fatherly figure. Then what God does with you is not dependent on your anointing. It's dependent on the grace He has vested in the Father. That will make its way to you. And you will be powerfully anointed in what God called you to do. Because what God called you to do is an expression of that word. So you enter the labor of, of others. Check how Psalm 105 tells the story. There are many psalms that give an historical account of God's gracious dealings with Israel. Not so? Especially how God took them out, right? So, verse 9 speaks about the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. He confirmed it to? Everyone say, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Again, yeah, there's that emphasis on covenants, promises made to forefathers. To Israel for an everlasting covenant. Verse 26. So that, that is mentioned. And further down in the psalm, he sent who? He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed wondrous acts among them and miracles in the land of Ham. Now, you can say, wow, Moses, wonderful acts, powerful miracles, right? Moses' church was mighty miracle center or something like that. This guy hits rocks and water flows. He puts up a bronze servant. Everybody's getting healed one time, right? He throws dead stick into a, a bitter pond of Mara and the bitter waters of Mara are cleansed. This guy takes a rod, puts it over an ocean and the ocean obeys him. This guy's mighty, right? Don't play with Moses. Tell someone, don't play with Moses. This guy's got the stuff. Things are happening, right? But the next verse says, he performed these miracles. He sent darkness and made it dark and they did not rebel against his, against his words. Verse 27 or rather verse 37, sorry. Just for time, I'm going to drop a few verses. He brought them out with silver and gold. Remember when they left? Right? They came out rich. Among the tribes, there was no one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for covering and fire to illumine by night. They asked, he brought quail. He satisfied them with the bread of heaven remember who was leading them eh? Moses he opened the rock and water flowed it ran in dry places like a river why why he did not remember Moses he remembered Abraham everything that's happening in Moses's world because God has got a promise that he made to a forefather. All Moses is doing, he's locking into that purpose. And he's making his present actions relevant to the patriarchal promises given to a forefather. 
You would be a fool to try and do your own thing in your own time. You must die unto yourself and you'd rather say, reach, resource, reform. Yeah. Is the mandate of our spiritual father. Yeah. Everyone say reach, reach. Resource, resource, reform. Reform. That's locked up in our spiritual father, pastor, Thamo and I do. Everything we do must bear relevance to that mandate. If we can lock what we do into that mandate, guess what? The grace given to the one to whom the mandate was given becomes ours. And we become powerful in our day to mighty exploits for God because the purposes of God attended with us bear direct reference to, they are referable to everything God has promised the Father. So tell your neighbor, so then you can't do your own thing. The best you can do is to fully support your leader in what God has called him to do. Because in what you do in your time, you will have this grace anointing flow to you, such that you do mighty exploits, because they become, that's why you can't take the glory. I think when Moses got to heaven, and he's reading this psalm, how? <laughs> he must have put hours there on the ground. I to contend, how? But the credit goes to a promise God gave to Abraham. God expects you to die unto yourself. Right? Die unto yourself. Yeah? Do you know, did Joseph not have a great name in Egypt? He did. He was second to the Pharaoh, not so. He built silos, grain storage houses, that saved Egypt and the den of the known, the whole of the then known world. Not so? But you know what he said before he died? He said to his brothers and those surviving him, he said, um, when you leave this place, take my bones with you. He was even willing to leave his legacy, what he had built in Egypt, in deference and preference for the purposes of the Lord attendant with Israel in a land promised to them, Canaan. Right? No glory personalized unto himself. Amen? No glory personalized unto himself. Now, go to um, another example of this. The same thing. Uh, in fact, let's just do one more. Uh, go to Acts 16. Acts 16. Acts 16. Verse 1. They passed, Paul came to Derb and Lystra. Acts 16 verse 6, sorry, my, my error. Acts 16 verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. After they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Passing through Mycenae, they came to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man from Massa, Donia was standing appealing to, appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and do what? Help us. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Next verse. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now notice what it says. Look at that verse. The previous verse says the following. It says, He saw the vision. Who saw the vision? Come on, who saw the vision? Paul. 
But the, Luke, the physician, who wrote the book of Acts, he's writing. He says, Paul saw it, but who went? We. Everyone say we. He, singular, saw it, but the response was we. There must always come a we response to what he saw. He saw it, we went. You do not have to see everything. Just trust what your leader sees. All you must do is support that which your leader has seen. And they go to Macedonia. Paul just sees this vision in the night. A man says, like he's seeing a man in vision, come and help us, come and help us, come and help us. Paul wakes up from the vision and he shares the vision with these men. And they say, we, okay? Everyone say, we will go. Tell someone, we will go. Right? We will go. Oh, by the way, this was Macedonia, not so. And which city was in Macedonia? Philippi. They go to Philippi and there they meet Lydia, their first meeting. A woman, a group of women praying, not so? At the river there. And the Bible says this, and the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to do what? To receive the things that Paul was preaching and later on Lydia opened her house to the Apostle Paul to use it as a base of operations for his ministry efforts in Philippi you would not have a book of Philippians today if these things did not happen today we have a book of Philippians because a group of men around Paul trusted the vision that he saw he saw it they said we will go they go and meet in a strategic contact. Everyone says strategic contact. James and Lucy, I believe God's going to bring many Lydia's your way. Lydia was a seller of fine purple. If you're selling purple, who's your clientele? Kings. This is a very successful businesswoman. I know Philippi was a poor region, right? Um, with Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, I want to make known to you the grace upon the churches at Massa. Don't you? you wouldn't even have those two chapters in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 if it wasn't for these initial actions. Right? We have a whole history that came out of this. Let me just say this to you by the Spirit. You are about to paint a brand new history. Stuff is going to be written in the future and years from now. And when we trace Go back and go into the archives and trace it back. We'll say, well, there was a man called Gideon that simply gave a man called James strong support. Everything has a starting point. Things can, you don't know what's ahead of you in terms of the wide impact. Don't see the thing small. Don't, don't, be, don't be parochial. Don't be limited in what you do. Okay? Uh, because there are great things in store for you. So the Bible says, and the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to receive the word of Paul. Then later it says, and Lydia opened a house to receive Paul. Lydia brings Paul into a house after the Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive the word of Paul. You will never open your house to Paul until you open your heart to receive the word of Paul. So the heart is open to receive the doctrine of the man, and then she opens her structures she opens her, her life. She opens her resource. She opens her wealth. Paul used this context as the basis for your, for your operations. The Old Testament counterpart of this 
is the Shunammite woman, who when she saw Elisha coming to the city frequently, she built a structure, an upper room above her house for the man of God. Not so, right? She positioned the man of God above her and not believed them. <laughs> Did not put Elisha in the basement. She built an upper room for him. This lady made structural adjustment to her house. She didn't say there's a spare room. She built. She built. The Bible says she constructed an upper room. She pulled architectural plans out, went to the town council, made the application to pass the plans, hired some builders, got some resource, built something. My thing is this. She made structural alteration to a dwelling that was permanent. You see, to my guy to your room means he can leave the room. But if you're making structural adjustment to your house, it means you are entrenching a principle that you're not going to leave. Right? And Elisha would come there consistently. And this woman, was she not the recipient of grace? Oh, grace flowed to her. Where she was barren, she now conceived and she had a son, not so. What was she doing? She is just saying, I will support purpose. In the man of God, I'll position him above me, not below me. I hold him in honor, hold what he does in high esteem. And I will never leave double rest. The word Shunam means double rest. She was a Shunamite woman. Not one rest, two full rest. Yeah? And you know the story how that when the famine hit, who was the first one to be informed of the famine when it hit? This lady was the very first one. I know that Elisha had double portion of Elijah, not so. Elijah's famine was three and a half years. Widow of Zarephath, remember? How she took her first meal and she gave it to Elijah. And for the rest of the three and a half years, her, her oil and bread did not wane. Did Elisha have double portion of Elijah? Yes or no? Is it publicly recorded that Elisha walked in twice the amount of miracles that Elisha did? Yes. You count. The record is there. But Elisha also had double the problems. You don't double one thing. It's double everything. right? Because Elijah had three and a half year famine. Elisha had a seven year famine to deal with. Right? And who does the first one does he inform of the famine? He informs the Shunammites. He tells her, the Lord told me there's going to be a famine. So here is what you need to do. He informs her as to what to do to survive the famine. Go to a certain place and there abide, he says to her. Right? After the seven-year famine, she comes back to the king to try to see if she could get her land back. Because by this time, if you leave your farm vacant, don't expect to, after seven years, come and still find it in one piece. Right, squatters everywhere. And she appeals to the king to get her land back. Right? And as she approaches the king, who's talking to the king? Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, at that same time, same day. And the king is asking Gehazi, tell me about your servant Elijah. And this woman walks in. The dots are connected. And the king says to the woman, not only will you have your land back, but all the profit that you would have accrued as if there was no famine, if you had worked the land for seven years, all that harvest compound interest I give to you. You lose nothing. You lack nothing. But what was the woman's secret? What did she do? She just honored a man of God. 
That's all she did. She recognized purpose and she supported purpose. She recognized purpose and she did everything in her power to facilitate that purpose. I want to submit to you, Fountain Gate, that you will not lack in the time of famine. Submit to you that if you understand this principle, and if you say, God, your purposes are my priority, they are vested in my leader, I, I do my very best financially, practically, in my prayer life, my active support, whatever means I can, I'm going to support this. And I guarantee you, I won't have time to prove this. We have seven minutes left. I won't have time to prove this in other places in Scripture. But over and over again, you will see the pattern. God takes care of people like that. Right? You lose nothing, but you will gain more than if that famine did not exist. That's the promise of the Lord to you. Amen. Do you know, just by the way, speaking of Elijah, Elisha and Elijah, are somewhere in my notes here. Did not Elisha call Elijah my father, my father, the horsemen and the, the chariots of, of Israel? Did not he say that? Now, ask, uh, answer me this. Who was... What did Elisha father that said exactly the same thing to him? King Joash. Not so? Just if you're taking notes, take these references down. Right? First Kings 19 and verse 21 says that Elisha arose and he followed Elijah and did what to him? He ministered to him. First Kings 19 verse 21b. Look at the last part at the bottom there. It says, he arose and followed him and did what to him? What did Elisha do to Elijah? The son must minister to the father. Right? This word in the Hebrew is sarat. S-A-R-A-T. Sarat. And sarat means to serve or to attend to or to contribute. Like a domestic servant serving its master. Serve. Tell someone, serve your leader. Right? I won't have time to go to Moses and Joshua. The Bible says Joshua ministered unto Moses. Right? Joshua ministered unto to Moses. Okay? So, in 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 11, the last portion because of time, the last part of this verse says the following. Look at the last part. Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, and he used to do what? He used to pour what? Water on the hands of Elisha. So Elisha's job, in part, was to wash the hands of Elijah. The hands are a very significant part of the human body. In biblical symbolism, the hands always speak of purpose. Why? Because the Bible says, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So a hand always does. A hand is that part of the body that executes the will of the person. So a hand is performance oriented. So where it says, Elisha, watch the hands of Elijah, it's simply saying the spiritual son did his best to make sure that his father's hands were ready and clean to do the purposes of the Lord. Okay? Ready and clean to do the purposes of the Lord. Now, what happened when Elisha was taken up. Elijah. What was the only requirement for double portion, by the way? If you see me as I 
as I go up, whatever I have, you get double portion. Everyone say double portion. Right? So as they were going up, I won't read the text, but take it down at 2 Kings 2 from 9 to 14. You know the story. Elisha said to Elijah, my father, my, my father, the horsemen and the chariots of, of Israel. So Elijah's gone. He's no more on the earth. Elisha is functioning with twice the anointing of Elijah. Then in 2 Kings 13, from verse 14 to 21, the Bible says Elisha became sick. Now he's about to die. He became sick with the sickness with which he's about to die. 2 Kings 13, 14. And King Joash, everyone say Joash, weeps. And he says exactly what Elisha said to Elijah many years before. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its, and its horsemen. Let's just read this because it's interesting. Elisha said to him, so please remember the context. Elisha is about to exit this planet. He's about to die, but he hasn't transferred his mantle to anybody yet. In essence, it's potentially going to be transferred to this king. Because this king is saying exactly the same formula that Elisha used in reference to Elijah. So Elisha says to him, take a bow and arrow. And he took a bow and arrow. He says, put out your hand. Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. So yes, King Joash with the bow, and Elisha comes and holds the king's hands. So Elisha prophesies, and he says, open the window and shoot towards the east. He opened it, Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And then Elisha prophesies, the Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Amram, for you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have de." destroy them. So a prophecy of great victory for the king. He was about to face a war. So there's a second instruction now. So take the arrows, and he took them, and so, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And he struck it how many times? Gua, 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 and he stops. Did Elisha say strike it three times? Did Elisha say three times? All he said was, strike the ground. The Joash decided three times. Elisha did not say three times. Next verse. So the man of God was angry. Now Elisha gets angry with the guy. And he says to him, you should have struck five or six times, for then you would have struck Amram until you would have destroyed it. But now you will shall strike Amram only three times. Elisha died and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of that year. And as they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood upon his feet. So the anointing of the mantle did not leave Elisha even when he died. He still had it. He's dead. And a man falls by accident into his grave. And the man lives. <laughs> Let me ask you this. What was the difference between Elisha and King Joash? Why can Elisha get double portion 
and King Joash not receive anything, right? Part of the reason is there's no record in Scripture of Joash ministering unto Elisha. There's no record of him serving the man of God. Although he regards the man of God as my, as my father, let me just say this to you. Grace and anointing comes to those who, who position themselves in a supportive manner to their, to their spiritual father. Elisha fully obeyed Elijah. Not so? He fully obeyed him. If you read the record, Joash half-heartedly obeys Elisha. Remember, Elisha also fully followed Elijah. Remember from Beth, from Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho. Remember how he followed him? For 15 years. Faithful. There's no record that King Joash followed Elisha in a similar fashion. Elisha saw Elijah go up and ascend. And double portion was given. There's no portion that Joash tracked the upward ascension of his spiritual father. Track. Everyone say, track your father. Because he's going up. You get what I got if you see me go up. That's the principle. Double portion is given to you if you see me taken up. So listen carefully. I want to say this to you seriously, Fountain Gate. Your pastor has gone up. And he's going up. If you can track the spiritual ascendancy, the increased mandate, the increased responsibility, he's not going up. He's not like, not being raptured. He's not sending into the clouds. But see with the eyes of the Spirit. There is something going up. And if you can see him as he goes up, you'll get twice what he got. Right? Track the development. Support it wholeheartedly. One last portion, quickly, because of time. Time is up. Can I do one more, James? This concerns Exodus 13, Exodus 17, sorry. Exodus 17, 8 to 16. It concerns how Aaron and her held up the hands of Moses, providing him strong support. Not so. Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Just hold it there. Hold this verse there. Amalek Amalekite, the word Amalek or Amalekite means the following. It means he who licks up or licking. It also means he who exhausts, brings weariness, brings tiredness. You're exhausted. He who exhausts. Amalek is a depressive spirit. It comes in to encourage depression. It literally means he who dwells in the valley. So it's a low place. So it, it's, its whole intent is to incite what? Discouragement. Have you ever been weary and you cannot find a specific reason for it? It's like a spirit of heaviness comes from nowhere. That's, a, that's like an Amalekite thing. It brings depression. Uh, sometimes I can have a powerful service. Everyone's happy and they go home. I go home and have lunch and a serious spirit of depression hits me. I should be, the whole church is rejoicing. Yeah, my in depression. And this is, a, this is a funny spirit. Spirit of heaviness. Right? And then it says, oh, Rephidim. Everyone say Rephidim? Rephidim has two meanings. It means, in fact, there are three, but two essential ones. It means rest. Everyone say rest. So the spirit of Amalek comes to attack your rest. Amalek fights against Israel where? At 
Rephidim. But you know, Rephidim also means two powerful things further. It means props. Everyone say props. So props it also means support. When you prop something up, it's a support structure to hold the thing up, not so? So you anchor it, you consolidate it. So the spirit that encourages exhaustion, weariness, depression, comes up to attack your rest and to attack your propness. <laughs> your disposition to be a prop, to be a support, to leadership. Right? So, it also means the shrinking of the hands. Rephidim also means the shrinking of the, of the hands. So look at the, the verse 9 says the following. Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against the spirit. Tomorrow I will station myself where? On top of the hill with what in my hand? The rod, which is a, a representation of leadership or authority in Moses' context. Also, the rod is uh, an expression of tribal, the tribal configuration of Israel. The Hebrew word is mateh. So when God sees Moses' rod, he sees all the 12 tribes of Israel. He sees the authority given to Moses to lead. I will stand on top, just go back to verse 9. Uh, on top of the hill with staff in my, of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought against Amalek. Moses, Aaron, and her, everyone say Aaron and her, went up to the top of the hill. Now, let me just say this. Thank God that Aaron and her went with Moses. You must applaud these two guys. Because, hey, thank, if they didn't go up, Amalek's not going to be sorted. Right? So they support their leader, and while Joshua fights in the valley, because that's where Amalek thrives, in a valley, depression, low place, exhaustion, right? Joshua meets them where they are at. And Mo Moses goes up and he stands. And Aaron and her go with him. Came about when Moses held his hands up, Israel prevailed in the valley with Joshua. When his hands went down, Amalek prevailed. So long as Moses' hands are up, Joshua is winning. Moses' hands drop, Joshua becomes defeated. Moses' hands were heavy. Right? Now you must never allow your leader to have heavy hands. It was always like Elisha washed the hands of Elisha. Clean, unnecessary stuff from off his hands. So he can focus on the task to which the Lord has called him. Okay? Then it says, they took a stone and they put it under him. And what he sat down on it. And Aaron and Hurster on either side. And they did what? Support. What does Rephidim mean? Props. Support. They are modeling what the place means. right? Supporting their, their leader. right? Supporting their leader. One on one side, the other on the other. And his hands were steady until sunset. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the, of the sword. Now watch. I'm getting to a point. You must stay with me here. It's very important, this text. The Lord said to Moses, write this in a book, as a memorial and recited to Joshua, I'm going to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it what? The Lord, my banner. What Jehovahistic name of God is this? Jehovah Nisi. 
The first time the word Jehovah Nisi is revealed in Scripture, it's in this context. Right? And look at the next verse. Yeah, the, then the Lord said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Because of time, and I don't want to miss my flight, I'm going to, I'm going to be short. Right? Listen. When Israel left Egypt, Amalek fought against Israel. At the point of the Exodus, the first enemy that came against Israel was this group, the Amalekites. And you know, they were so cowardly, they attacked Israel, the Bible says, from behind. They can't face you, they attack you at your most vulnerable parts. And some commentators say, the women and children were stragglers or behind. So they attacked Israel where they were most weak. Okay, so it's a cowardly spirit. And you know what? When, when God did that, God said, I will never forget what Amalek did to my people. And I commit to blot them out, the memory of them from the, the face of the earth. King Saul was supposed to have done that. Wipe out the Amalekites. But he kept back the best sheep. Except. You know the story, right? So yeah, look at this. So Joshua is fighting this spirit. Please remember, Amalek is not a people. Amalek is a spirit for us. Joshua, under Moses' command, says, My boy, my son in the Lord, you go and do the business. You go there, you be the man on the ground, and you deal with the spirit. But as for me, I'm going to position myself on top of a hill with the authority of God. In other words, the purpose of God, the will of God, my, my authorization to function on top. My hands will be up. As long as my hands are up, you prevail. Aaron and her, when Moses' hands got weary, support him. They are props. Tell your neighbor, your new name is Prop. Okay, I renamed you in the previous service. I call you Amasai. Burden bearer. Now you are a prop. <laughs> okay? Now he props them up. Right? He props Moses up. The, just quickly, the meanings of their names. Interestingly, Aaron means the following. What kind of props does God want? Aaron means... Light. Everyone say light. It means shining one. So Aaron alludes to the principle of enlightenment or illumination. Right? If you're going to be an effective prop, supportive man, you're going to function from a place of revelation. You're not supporting the man. You're supporting the purposes of God in the man. Because God has got an enemy that he needs to deal with called Amalek, right? And notice, and oh, by the way, the secondary meaning of, of Aaron is a mountain of strength. Who is Aaron? Everyone say a mountain of strength. I encourage you to become a mountain of strength. Right? His name also means teaching. One who can teach. All of these principles are supports to your father in the Lord. One who can teach. Her, the other guy, her, H-U-R, means cavern. Cavern, C-A-V-E-R-N, cavern. A cavern is a hole, right? So, Aaron has got the implication of his meaning. He's the one who knows how to harrow out or to dig into, to, 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 to get into stuff. Something can be impregnable, but this guy is able to dig a hole in it, right? He's powerful. The secondary meaning of her is noble and one of splendor. Noble and one of splendor. Now let's wrap this up. 
Moses becomes tired and they hold up his hands. Oh, by the way, the Lord just reminds me of something. Remember at Ziglag, when David came back with his men and they saw that the enemy took all their wives and what did the men say? The Bible says, and the men were minded to kill David. This same 30. Okay, before they were 30, they were like this. <laughs> before they transformed, they want to kill the grace carrier. The, what the Bible says, they wanted to stone him, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. We often say that's a powerful verse. And David, that's a very bad verse. He didn't, he should not have to encourage himself when he had men to encourage him. We often say, wow, what a verse. And David encouraged himself in the Lord. The context is those closest to him wanted to use their hands to stone him. But yes, Aaron and her taking a stone to put under Mo uh, Moses to support him. Use your hands for the right thing. Don't stone your leader. Take the stone and support him. Yeah. Hallelujah. Oh, by the way, the stone there is Eben. Say Eben. E-B-E-Ben. E-E-N. The root is Ben, which means son. So when Aaron and her took a stone and they put it under Moses, made him sit, held up his hands, what were they putting under him to support him? Sonship. Sonship supports the leader. Yeah. When God looked at this, listen to me. God was revealed as Jehovah Jireh to who in the Bible? To Abraham. God was revealed as Jehovah Shalom to who in the Bible? The Lord is peace. Gideon, not so? God did not reveal all of himself at one go to one man. God came progressively in time and offloaded aspects of his nature to certain men because of what they faced. Not so? Remember Gideon faced the Midianites. The Midianites, what does Midian mean? Strife and tension. How do you meet strife and tension? With peace. So God comes to Gideon and says, I am the Lord of peace. Jehovah Shalom. Because that is the most powerful aspect of my nature. Peace deals with strife. So now, yes, Amalek, a formidable enemy. So listen carefully. Everyone say Nisi. Jehovah Nisi is that part of God that is the warfaring dynamic. It's the military man in God. Sometimes you don't need God to be loving. Sometimes you need a warrior in your life. Yeah? Sometimes in some context you don't need um, peace. You need him to come as a general of war to do battle, serious battle for you on your behalf. And let me just say this to you. The nature of God as Jehovah Nissi was only unveiled to a context who knew how to support leadership. Nowhere else in the scripture is Jehovah Nissi going to be revealed. He's only going to be revealed to a context who knows how to support the man of God in the purposes of the Lord. Now I believe Fountain Gate Church, James and Lucy, God in this next season is going to come to you as Jehovah Nissi. What you're going to need on your behalf, the most powerful aspect in the nature of God, is going to be a mighty man of war doing battle on your behalf. But 
the help of God that you need to help you in a warfaring dynamic is going to come to a certain context where people like Aaron and her support the man of God in the purposes of the Lord and the will of God runs swiftly. Amen. I would like to encourage you, but time won't permit, on Shekinah. Shekinah is a very powerful man in Ezra's world. When Ezra was commanded by God to administrate mass divorce. Let me read you the text. Can I read the text? Everyone say, encourage your leader. Come on, tell someone, tell someone, encourage your leaders. Okay. Now, let me just find it in my notes. Ezra, go to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 10, verse 1 to 4. While they were in Babylonian captivity, Israel married inaccurately for 70 years. Ezra comes back and God says to him, divorce everybody. Let every man divorce the wife that he married inaccurately. There were children involved, so it was a very emotionally tense thing. And who's given the task? Ezra. So Ezra was praying and making confession and weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God and a very large assembly, men and women and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept bitterly. Shekaniah. Everyone say Shekaniah. Okay, now you know about Elijah supporting Elijah. You know about Aaron and her supporting Moses. You know about the 30 mighty men supporting uh, King David, etc., etc., etc. This guy I love. Everyone say, your new name is Shekaniah. So you've got multiple new names, right? You are Masai, you are Mighty Man, you are Shekaniah. Uh, Shekaniah means one who is intimate with God, right? Or, or the, the, the person of God. Shekaniah, son of Jehel, one of the sons of Elim, said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Now yet there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God and put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of the Lord, and let it be done. Everyone say, let it be done. This guy has a hard thing to do. And Ezra, you are mandated with the serious task. It's a hard thing to do, but we're going to do it according to the commandment of the Lord. And the next verse says, watch, arise, for this matter is your responsibility. But who's going to be with you? Everyone say, we will be with you. Remember what Luke and company said to Paul, you see it, but we go. So Shekaniah says to Ezra, the scribe, it's your responsibility. But guess who's with you? We, in other words, this guy is saying, whatever repercussions come from this, you don't take the rap, we are all standing with you. We are with you as you administrate a difficult task in the kingdom. So the, the man, Shekaniah, encourages the leader. You be strong and you be courageous and you act. When last did you encourage your leader? When last? If you have been the recipient of consistent encouragement from your leader. I want to encourage you to encourage them. You have no idea what sometimes one verse from you can do to James. 
People have this false perception that we are always on top of our game as leaders, that we are strong, no challenges, we are fine. Sometimes we do need encouragement, right? David encouraged himself in the Lord when his men should have encouraged him. Amen? So I want to encourage you. This guy says, arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and, and act. Yeah, there's, there's Ezra. There's a whole lot of people before him that he must divorce. And there's a Shekinah on the sign saying to his leader, go for it, go for it. Your responsibility, but we are with you. Amen? Stand with me. James and Lucy, can you stand here? Maybe face the congregation. Everybody stretch forth your hands to them. We're going to do this very quickly because of time. Stretch forth your hands toward them. Can we put that same verse up? Arise, for well, this, is, this is your responsibility. Can I ask the church, are you going to provide strong support? Yes. Are you going to provide strong support? Yes. Are you going to be a Messiah in the spirit? Yes. Yeah. Are you going to be like Luke and say, you saw, but we will go? Yes. Yeah. Are you going to be like David's mighty men that give them strong support? Yes. Yeah. Are you going to be an Aaron? Yes. Are you going to be a her? Yes. Right. Are you going to use stones to support? Yes. Not stones to, to, to kill and destroy? Yes. Yeah. I want to encourage you. Are you going to be a Shekinah in the spirit? Yes. Right? To encourage the mandate. Right? Now say this to them and read with me. You, you're going to read these words because they have a serious responsibility before the Lord. But we are saying this to them in the, in the spirit this, this afternoon. Let's say it together. One, two, three. But listen before you say it. Who are you talking to? You're talking to your leaders, right? Everyone repeat and let's talk to them and let's read. One, two, three. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Come on, say it again. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Last time, one more. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. The greatest support, one of the greatest supports you can give to them is to pray very strongly for them. Stretch forth your hands and begin to pray. Come on, bless your leaders. Pray for them. Hold up their hands in the spirit. The spirit of Amalek, God wants to wipe out from Kenya. But he needs men. Jehovah Nisi is going to be activated in this house. Jehovah Nisi is going to be activated. A mighty man of war. Hallelujah. We worship you, God. We present James and Lucy to you. We strengthen their hands, strengthen their minds, strengthen their spirits, strengthen their bodies, keep all sickness and all disease away from them and their children and their household of faith in the name of the Lord. Build a protective guard round about them, Father. In the name of the Lord, Father, I ask you to look upon them and look upon your purposes for which they administrate on behalf of promises made to forefathers. I ask in Jesus' name that you would protect them, support them, strengthen them with all might in the inner man in Christ Jesus. 
Make their minds strong against the taunts of the enemy. May they not be discouraged, but may they rise in strength. I ask for new grace, new grace, great grace upon them, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. We bless them. We bless them on your behalf as a congregation. We will support them. We say, Arise, arise, man of God, arise, woman of God, arise, for this matter is your responsibility. But we will be with you. Be courageous and act, but we will be with you in the name of the Lord. We will be with you in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Now, Father, I bless the congregation. I bless the congregation with great grace in Jesus' name. I pray you prove yourself strong, Father, to those whose hearts are perfect towards you. I pray you bless people in their workplaces, in their marriages, in all of their relationships. I pray the spirit of mocking will not rest, will not be successful against them. But I declare that they will arise above every taunt of the enemy and do the work of the Lord. We do not say there are three months, for the fields are white unto harvest. We sense the urgency, Father. So I ask a special grace blessing upon Fountain Gate Church in the name of the Lord Jesus. May the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be with you always. May great grace be your portion, church. Do the work of God that God has called you to do. Do so courageously. Do so with absolute conviction. Set your face as a flint towards Jerusalem. Do not be detoured. Do not be distracted. Do what the Lord has called you. The Lord make your hands strong today. The Lord strengthen your hands in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now I commend you to God and to the work, word of His grace that is able to build you up to grant you an inheritance amongst all the saints that are sanctified. In Jesus' mighty name.